This is NRL Boom Rookies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of NRL Boom Rookies. I'm Matt Bungard. Alongside me, as always, Mitch Doyle. Hello. Good day, everybody. And Dalroots is here. He's back. He is. You've not been with us the last couple of NFL pods, and we had a week off last week, but finally yeah. the three of us are back recording yeah. together for the Ready first time. Like in, honestly, it feels like it's been... Frog in a sock, man. It feels like it's been forever. Unintentional but, uh, week off, but we went to NRL Boom, NFL Boom Rookies again, and uh, I'm glad yeah. we stopped that already because I didn't want to do it this week. You know we have to do one. You, you know we have to do one next week for the Super Bowl, right? You understand that. Um, but anyway, uh, yes, we are back, back with some rugby league chat. Um, we've got a bit of a long form topic to talk about um, uh, tonight, and that that is something that's really appeals to the three of us for different reasons. Obviously it appeals to me because I love rugby league. It appeals to the uh, long haired uh, CD mustache co-host because he loves French stuff. And it appeals to my blonde haired blue eyed podcast ho- uh, mm. co-host because he is a big fan of Nazism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is just one of this is, uh, this is the biggest. I just like to, cla- yeah. I just like to clarify uh, a cast. Please don't cancel our recording. I, I, I'm not clarifying anything. I'm just saying the biggest disgrace of this regime we're going to talk about is clearly the one story we're talking about, which is the rugby league union story. The rest. That's up for interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We will be uh, going into depth on um, the history of rugby league in France and how it was basically killed by the Nazis. Um, yes. But yes, but before we do that, we've had uh, Rugby Union taking something else from Rugby League just today, fellas, with the news that uh, Roger Tuivasa-Shet, one of the game's most exciting players, um, will be heading off to Rugby Union, reportedly. There was yeah mentions early in the earlier in the year, if you remember, that he was unhappy and, and looking to to move, but it was more around you know if he had to spend another year in Australia in quarantine or similar, he was going to look to move to Union. But it looks like it's happened anyway. That might have been the the convenient story sold if if quarantine was happening again this year. But it, it, the the word is that uh, to, Roger Tuivasa-Shek has gone to the Auckland Blues from twenty twenty two. I think it will be twenty eight or nine at that point as a hope of playing in the 2023 rugby world cup, uh, taking less money to do it reportedly as well. Obviously trying to earn that all blacks contract. I'm just putting it out there. Every time this happens, we hear you know, the game has to do it. Can to stop this bloke? And you know, you know, the game can't let this happen and all this. Blah, nah. blah, blah. <laughs> I'd like to have us a check, but I don't give two shits. No, it's no. really tough for warriors fans. It's tough for the game to lose an entertaining player, but I honestly don't think he's been that much that entertaining the last couple of years to the player he previously was. And he'll move on and we'll find somebody else. Yeah, I mean, look, the game survived us losing, what, prime Wendell Saylor, prime Matt Rogers, prime Lottie Takiri, and then a couple of other guys like Blacklock as well, Ryan Cross. Like, we survived that. We, like, yeah. the peak sort of late 90s, early 2000s, where Union pillaged, like, a lot of guys from rugby league. Like, we can lose one or two. And uh, you're right, two hours check's a great player, but... Game goes on. Next man up. Start of the. Uh, What's Omar Slime Ankle doing? Get him back. <laughs> yeah, I know this joke's made by made by everybody, but it's already this will be the first excuse cab off the rank with two of us check leaving the Warriors for Brownie and and Philip Gould, uh, over there. So, yeah, I think that it's obviously a tough year head for them knowing they're losing their captain and fullback this early, but there's nothing they can do about that in this instance. It's not going to another club. This is just what it is. It's, you know, other times they'll people could bitch, oh, you can't sign for South a year out. But this is something that they could do nothing about if he's going going to Union. Um, I guess you'd be all eyes on, you know, what guys like Hayes Dunster and Paul Turner over there. Maybe that you'll recruit somebody to, to fill in fullback for the year. But I just don't think uh, to us a check ever. I know he won a Dally M, but I don't think he ever truly maintained that level of stardom we, we expected. And I'm, I'm well, that talking... Deli M rightfully belongs to Damian Cook anyway. Yeah. So yeah, and I'm not even talking about you know consistent performance at the top level. I'm talking about stardom. In the no, I, I, you're you're right. I mean, how many finals did they the Warriors play in in the time he's been there? Yeah, and I mean, zero. It, yeah, and he yeah. was a hardworking player and similar. But but I'm talking about stardom. I know he has a step and similar to him, but he didn't re- he didn't really carry the cachet of a name of a James Tedesco, or even a Kalen Pong, even though Pong has achieved far less. Like, you know, I don't think he's been the best fullback for a while. Yeah, I mean, and you like just going through that now. I mean, he obviously uh, they they scraped into eighth in twenty eighteen. That was his Dallium year. He scored ten tries that year. Mm. I know tries aren't the metric that we judge fullback play on, but apart so five years at the Warriors, he got ten tries that year. The other four years combined, he had sixteen tries. They won. 
that was their only winning season and they finished eight. The other four years, they were they were pretty shit house. Um, and that's obviously not his fault, but you do look to guys who are pretty much unanimously accepted as being one of the top, 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 top players of the game mm-hmm. to at some point just grab one of those teams by the scruff and neck and drag it somewhere, but he didn't. Yeah, um, he's, he's almost so. like a, a bit Josh Dugan-esque in, towards later part of his career that he's a bit of a, a meter eater and a, and a good ball returner and an okay support player. But you, just, but you weren't, yeah, you weren't really getting, I know you only laid on three tries this season. I know it was a shorter season, but you weren't really getting the, the ball playing you expect from a top tier fullback. I know, I know Warriors fans are shattered, but I just think they'll recover from this one quite easily. You know, just well, I mean, we we none of us were particularly high on their prospects for this year anyway. So, I mean, there really was only up to go regardless of this. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, tough scene, but like again, what are you going to do it, it, when rugby union comes calling? There's nothing you can do about it, as as you just said, because yeah, um, I mean, I mean, I think losing Sean Johnson was was what broke oh, the Warriors yeah. team anyway. And I'm not saying they need a rebuild, but it's more so that I think that was what kind of killed their last bit of identity. You know, and um, we'll see what they do from here. They've got gone to a bigger forward pack for some reason, but they're getting bigger. Just got a uh, bunch of heck and chonkers in there for this year. We'll see how yeah, that he goes. Was, he's 28 this year, 29 next year. Good luck to him making the, the All Black squad as a. Or, I don't know how he's going to beat his, out. How does he Martin make the All Black? Yeah. How does, he, how does he make the All Black? <laughs> is he better than Carlos Spencer? I don't is know. Is he better than uh, Bowden Barrett? Who Trish, knows? They are, I mean, you named an actual current All Black, you idiot. You're supposed to name guys that retired 15 years I mean, ago. They are planning on moving Christian Cullen to centers for the upcoming World Cup. So. Uh, what about what's Brian Joe Rocco up to? There we go. Yes. yes. Well, Zach, what's Brian Obana doing? <laughs> he wasn't. Get him out of here. Fire him right now. Ridiculous. Where's. Uh, where's um, you got I one more know. chance. Redeem yourself. One more so, chance. And bef- oh. before we move past, let's talk about another New Zealand international player who's on the move. Is it Tano Munger? Yes, he's he's done it. <laughs> but Benji Marshall to South. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine with this. Uh, yeah. People were lampooning it online, and, and they compared it. Wait, why am I fine with it? Or no, why, no, why are people making... lampooning it? Like, I don't know because like he's a bit, he has Benji. been a bit of a meme player for a, for a little while now. Um, but you know, like when Cody Walker gets picked for Origin, would I rather have some bloke I've never heard, some child who I've never heard of playing five eight for two games or whatever, or Benji Marshall? Probably Benji Marshall. Mm. And he, you know, if he's being signed for 150k a year to play 14 or to play Reggie's, like which is what's being reported, then that's totally fine. I mean, you, you you're not going to find a better. Is he going to be better than whoever is in random reserve grade five eighth tier? Yes, he mm. is. So mm. it's fine. Where's Billy Brexit? What's he doing? <laughs> Billy Britain. <laughs> I don't know. Good question. Is he still at the Bulldogs? Not sure. Point is, yeah, it's fine. Little, very little money. Good yeah. depth signing, well, and I'm I'm sure he will provide some good experience around. Uh, I don't know. It's a far bigger know. upside for Souths than yeah. it is for him. And, and they were they were comparing it to. I saw people comparing it to the Robbie Farad thing. It's like it's not like that at all. The Robbie Farad thing. They a paid him a lot of money, and b he was coming in to like keep Damien Cook in reserve grade, which was a disaster. That and now Benji will do the same. Yeah. Oh my god. Like, Benji's going to play hooker. Yeah. I mean, so like the story of it's quite interesting. And I, I, I know what Benji says. He called Wayne because he was looking for a coaching gig. Yeah, you, you'll probably look fishing anyway. But so apparently Marshall or Benji had given up after he turned down the Cowboys offer and turned down the big money from Hull. I mean, Cowboys was like 350. Hull was about a 700K. Turned those down because he's having another child. Apparently, he'd kind of given up. You know, he, was about, he was in negotiations with Fox Sports to do a commentary deal with 200K a year. And talking to Triple M about calling games on the radio, so he was already—that's what the point he was at last week. And he called Wayne about doing some part-time coaching for for Souths, and it's ended up, you know, with being—he's—he's he's going there as, as a depth signing, and it—it's quite similar to the last time Benji linked up with Wayne. It was last chance saloon, but this is exactly the type of signing that it makes it just fine for Benji to be that there. As you said, yeah. Bungard, you've not signing to be a starter. If he plays well or not, doesn't really fucking matter, but there's going to be, you know, a couple of games or maybe a few games throughout the year that you're going to need another halfback to step in. And with the team South have, you know, you pretty settled on Walker and Reynolds for the next four or five years. Who was our five, eight in that storm game last year? I don't even remember, but it, it was Tracy. I, was, I thought it was good, but didn't he go no, to the sharks? It was someone no, else. Um, it was Troy Dargan. That's it. And he didn't do anything. It's like, yeah, but, crump, but fine. You guys are in a space that you're not really looking to bloody young half. No. 
So, so having someone like Benji who can competently fill in for a, a couple of games is perfectly fine. And then if he plays the 14, people will laugh at it, but whatever. We don't care at Brisbane. Well, Souths yeah. have a lot of 80-minute forwards anyway, yeah. so it's not it, it was it's fine. I like, thought the idea of signing Benji for a team as a starter was a terrible idea. But yes, that's not absolutely. Happened. But like with Souths having Murray and Arrow who can both comfortably play 80 minutes, like you don't really need four bench forwards anyway. So it's fine. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's mainly, yeah, he's fulfilling the, as you said, origin duty fill-in if, if that happens or if, ben, if Adam Reynolds, you know, dies for a few weeks again. Mm. But, yeah, I just <laughs> found it funny that it, it came about, you know, well, as he said, he said he was bringing Wayne for coaching. I reckon he knew, knew what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But, I mean, yeah, so that's the hefty pay cut to not go to, to stay in Sydney rather than go to Townsville, which is, mm. I mean, what was reported a couple of months ago was that he – Declined to go to North Queensland for probably double the amount of money that Souths are offering him. But um, yeah, yeah, and like he'll probably be happier, maybe potentially winning a comp and staying in Sydney rather than being in Townsville and coming 14th. So and by potentially winning a comp, we mean losing another prelim because this is what being a Packers and a South fan is about. At the moment. Okay, that's <laughs> yes. what it is. Fine, going close enough and uh, fine. I surrender. And speaking of surrender, uh, Very good <laughs> France. Very good. World War Two. Yeah, tough, <laughs> tough scenes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is a topic people have sort of requested that we talk about for a little while now. Um, we finally had some time to do it, I guess. Um, so, yeah, we will be discussing uh, sort of the history of rugby league in France, where it was first uh, played in the nineteen uh, in the, in the early parts of the nineteen hundreds before um, uh, the uh, the, the so some things happened, Dale. Uh, why don't the ba- you, why the bad don't, boys. Why don't, you uh, why don't you tell us, no, sort of a, give us a brief what, rundown of 1940 on No, why don't we start before that? Why don't we start with rugby league actually growing in the 30s? Yeah. I've, I've even gone even further back Oh, there you that. go. So, on, all right. So, I don't think you can tell the story of like rugby league in France without kind of telling the story of rugby union in France. Mm. Um, so rugby union in France was first played uh, in eighteen in the eighteen seventies. The first championship was played in the eight, uh, in eighteen ninety two. Um, it it became pretty widespread. Like the code grew um, pretty much nationwide. Like I mean, it's the dominant second most dominant sport now, but it's it's always been a very dominant sport in France, even all the way back to the nineteen hundreds. So there were teams in Paris as well in as well as in Bordeaux, Marseille, Toulouse, Lyon, Grenoble, up in the north. Um, there were teams all the way along there as well. Um, France played its first ever rugby test match in 1906 against um, an almost invincible New Zealand touring side. Up until this point on the first tour of New Zealand, uh, sorry, first tour of Britain and Ireland, New Zealand had been pretty dominant, losing one game and racking up a combined score of 830 to 39 over 31 good. games. Needless to say, this match did not go well for France and they got dicked 38 to 8. <laughs> Um, basically, um, after that, France was invited to play in what was then called the Home Nation Championship. So it became the, f- the Five Nations, um, and they really sucked. Um, so either side of World War II, they basically were like either the worst or the second worst team in the comp, and they got six wooden spoons. Um, and they also just like kicked the shit out of people and were constantly having players like banned for biting. Uh, in 1932... Basically, the British and Irish had had enough, and they expelled France from the competition because they were play- they were paying players in their own competition. And obviously, rugby up until nineteen ninety five was amateur, so that was a big no no. Uh, and also, they were just like kicking people, so that was never good. Um, but then the following year, nineteen thirty three, France hosted its first ever rugby league game between Australia and England on New Year's Day at Stade Pershing in the south of Paris. Uh, the English weren't very good and they got beat by like 40 points. But because France had just been kicked out of the Five Nations, they were playing rugby league, uh, rugby union teams like Italy and Germany and Romania and they were like shitting all over them. But the people of France were like, well, this is really boring. We want to watch something that's a lot of fun. And the media absolutely loved rugby league. So they were like eating this up. Uh, it was faster, less violent and much more interesting than rugby union even back in the thirties. Um, and yeah, as I said, they, they loved that. So the following year, 1934, a group of disgruntled rugby union players led by rugby prop and heavyweight boxer, <laughs> Jean Gallia formed the French rugby league, which was, well, the Federation Francaise du rugby à 13, the rugby for 13 and organized a tour of England. 
Yeah, he ended up over there. What the French rugby union banned him from playing in 1932. Yeah, uh, and then he, as you said, he got invited to take a assemble a team to go to England. Yeah, and threw together a team of union players he could find, <laughs> and basically, like the French rugby union players were like, "Well, like these guys are getting paid, and we have to like be bakers. So, like, I'd much rather be playing kind of professional, even if I'm not getting paid heaps, and make it semi-professional as opposed to completely amateur." Um, but obviously, like the French rugby union were really annoyed about this, and despite the fact that they were continually losing players, they still had a lot of political sway. So in the in 1934, they actually banned rugby league. Uh, they banned start pushing, which is where the first test match was played, or the first the match between Australia and England. They banned that from hosting any rugby union games, and because rugby union was so prevalent, then basically that stadium was only available to be used for league and soccer. Um, and it ended up hosting a bunch of other stuff, but like it was just a kind of scene, like a sign of things to come um, for French rugby league that they kind of they poked the beast um, that was French rugby union at that point, and the beast really bit back pretty hard. Um, but yeah, they started French rugby league started basically stealing all of the French rugby union players, and they were like, "Hey, would you like to make some money instead of like digging a hole in the ground?" And yeah, so. French Rugby Union set up the first French Rugby Union Championship in 1934, and things really kind of grew from there. Yeah, they um, as you said, they they had their first game as an international side in 1934, and by that off season over 1935, they had 14 teams semi-professional in, in rugby rugby league there. Yeah, by 1938, they had 434 rugby league clubs in the country. So the first season there was 29 clubs all the way down. In uh, second season, 121, but 1938 had 434. Mm. And at that point in the early 1930s, Union had 170-odd clubs, and they were down to 470 by 1938. So just before the World War, the, as you can see, the trend's going pretty much opposite direction. It was like 400 Union clubs had moved to being league clubs in that time. To go with what you were saying, Dale, that the the popularity of the game was growing with the, the semi-professionalism. People would get pl- paid playing it, but there was a more f- a bit of a feeling it was more entertaining. And and before the war broke out, though, as well, is that you know that they had their first ever rugby win, which is rugby league win over England in league. It happened, and it was Union had never beat England. Yeah, no, they were the first national team in any sport to ever win in England. Yeah, they won, and then they ended up in winning. Nineteen thirty-eight, and they ended up winning a European Cup of Rugby League in, uh, in thirty-nine. Sorry, in yep. nineteen thirty-nine, in front of twenty-five thousand people in Bordeaux, they beat Wales. So yeah, it's fair to say that just before what happened happened, that Rugby League was trending in in a, in a massive direction. It was kind of following a trend of what was happening in Australia, how it was it was growing, and uh, mm. and as you say, like because. Um, football was still, I mean, football had been around since the 1880s. I think the, the, what became the French first division didn't really start until I don't think the 1910s, but like football was always the common man's sport because it was so accessible and rugby union was much more, it, it was the gentleman's sport, much like it is everywhere else in the world. It's, it's, I mean, it was amateur, so you had to be rich enough to to pay, to play for no money, which was the whole thing with why rugby league split in the 1890s. Um, so you had these guys who were rugby professionals, oh, sorry, rugby amateurs who were very good athletes, then switching across to be, you know, semi-professional or professional. And that kind of drew with it this whole thing about being like, oh, maybe I don't need to work. It allowed people from a lower class to be able to kind of, even within that five or six years, be able to realize that like, oh, I don't have to work a job. I can get out of this shitty environment. I've got an opportunity to be a good athlete, um, even just within that six years. And that kind of trend, as you were saying, like this was the real, like this would have been the sliding doors moment for European sport if it weren't for the outbreak of World War Two in 1939. And kind of that's where the trend reversed, I think it was easy to say. <laughs> Uh, yeah. the, the French hit a big old, you really need to change that battery. <laughs> We've got sent a, a break of topic. We've got sent a DM from someone with advice on how to silence that. And I could, could to see 
young Matthew Mitchell Bungard has not taken that upon himself to. Did you just uh, take my bit where I insert other people, <laughs> like so replace other people's middle names with my own name and so reverse oh, it man. on me? Absolutely, absolutely dadded by Mitch. There. Ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. So in in the, in the after 1939, it became such an issue that even the word rugby league was banned. So what happened in 1939 that <laughs> that changed in France? I can't think of anything major. <laughs> hmm. So. Yeah. 1940, um, obviously, Paris basically. Well, the French um, put up. The French put up a little bit of a, and not a very good tactic with the Maginot Line. But if you want to listen to my takes on that, uh, join me on uh, NRL World War Two rookies. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basically, the Germans invaded from the north and they laid down their arms instead of having the shit blown out of Paris. Which I mean, in hindsight, probably a good call. Mm. Um, and yeah, so the the French set up, or sorry, the Germans set up a puppet regime, which was led by the guy who actually led the French at Verdun, um, Marshal Patin, who was recently put in the Pantheon, which quite caused quite a stir. Um, but yeah, basically the the issue with the Nazis and rugby league was that um, because these players were being paid, the Nazis were like, oh well, you can't do that. Um, and combine that with the fact that the French rugby union was hugely influential with like hugely in with the, the Vichy fascist regime. It, it like, it was, it was one and done basically rugby league was really up against it at that point. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how much people are up on the war. <laughs> you should be by now, but obviously France split in the, you know, the, the North was occupied by the Germans the South was, as you said, puppet regime and it was in Vichy. Yeah, and that, we'll be saying Vici a lot from here. Just that's what it is. And in Vici, by Marshall Patan, they started a like a national identity program, ideological program. Sorry, called the National Revolution. And that you know whole thing, it it, it happens across you know all through history with, with, when you have uh, European communism regimes or other regimes on the left, even the right. What am I saying? Anyway, strong political regimes. It's about you know bringing. France back up off its feet and, you know, and get rid of this period of moral decay and get rid of this period of decadence and, you know, become mm. true Frenchmen again or whatever it is. And, and as you said, rugby league being professional was against the ideological beliefs uh, of the new regime. And that belief contained sport being amateur and sport being representing the state and the people. And you're not representing you if you play if you play sport for France. You're representing France. You know the athlete. If you report in the media, the athlete hasn't got a name. France won that. You know France won that gold medal, not that athlete. And mm. you know sport and politics has been tied forever. And you'll see stuff. You know even to modern days in Russia, like how Putin will use uh, sport, like he'll use Sochi for Crimea, or he'll use uh, 2008 Beijing for invading Georgia. You know that sport has always used a bit, of a, a bit of a cover for nationalism and similar things like that, and in the, in these regimes, and yeah, rugby league was under attack within like a matter of months when they decreed that sports had to be amateur, and and for other professional sports, there was obviously football, soccer was, was professional at this time. Rugby league was not the only professional sport, but at this yeah, time, football, basketball, a few others were given three years to become amateur sports again. Whilst rugby league, and we'll cover that further, but rugby league wasn't given that option. Rugby league was was killed off that year, and there was only two sports I believe banned at that time, and the other sport is badminton. <laughs> I've seen for the French badminton uh, community, <laughs> but yeah, they wanted to um ban the the reasons they said to ban it though, as you said, it's a, professionalism was against the true virtue of sport. Mm. You know, it's a it's a corruption of the aim of sport. You know. And, and and professionalism is all is all the things that are wrong with sport, and it's just quite funny, you know, seeing thinking back then that you know rugby league, and I know now it was always about people moving going professional, but unions always been seen as the upper classman's game. <laughs> when you put it in these ways, it doesn't sound like the upper classman's game. Yeah, so as you said, um, basically 1939, there was a, a new bloke who was the uh, head of the French. Uh, rugby federation. His name was Albert Ginesti, and he was from the south of France. I think he was from Toulouse. Mm. Um, and he was basically, he was a doctor, former player, and a former manager of a team that still exists today, Stade Toulouse. Um, and 
basically his idea was that the easiest way to deal with this was to just slowly eradicate French rugby league. So basically the way that they did that was that French rugby league clubs were not allowed to hold any assets. French rugby league clubs then weren't allowed to use any grounds. And then at that point, basically the rugby federation and the state, which were really inextricably linked at this point, um, Brought down, well, Patan brought down a, a, a decree in 1941 that said uh, the association known as the French Rugby League is dissolved. Hmm. The her- heritage of the association is dissolved under the previous article and is transferred without modification to the National Committee of Sports, which assumes all charges and will then be represented will be represented in its liquidation operations. Uh, so basically, the French state took over rugby league and just committed it to the dust. And that was in 1941. And at that point, uh, obviously France was still occupied as was most of Europe um, Mm -hmm. with, you know, the war. Mm -hmm. Um, So there wasn't much that French rugby league could do because like every sport, even like, I mean, obviously there was wartime games in, in, uh, in the UK, there was like wartime competitions, but none of these people could do anything because they were all either f- either working under the Vichy regime or they were fighting in the French resistance. Um, so until France was liberated in, I think it was August 1944, um, basically there was no sport in France aside from what was being looked after by the Nazis at that point. Mm. Uh, interestingly, I think it was six weeks into the occupation. I know that he said the official decree didn't come down for a long time, but the sports minister said that the fate of rugby league is clear. Its life is over and will simply be deleted from French sport. Like that's so that's like pretty like weird to think about. Yeah, the way it's said, but it's deleting a sport. And and the funny thing is, as we we spoke about the ideologies and how they saying it was about amateurism versus professionalism and all those similar things, but. Uh, there, there's been a book written about it that's called The Forbidden Game by Mike Rylance. And, and he went into further investigation this and he believes the real drive to kill it off didn't come from any of those ideologies. It came from senior rugby officials that were in with uh, Vici. And uh, it, was, it was, you know, more so what they wanted to, to kill it off rather than it be part of the ideologies. And it seemed convenient to do it. So coupling it with, as you said, the amateurism movement because, you know, they let every other sport go back to amateurism, but rugby league had to die. And then that was, you could see there's obviously something at play there that's a bit more than, oh, mm. it's just we're getting rid of the professional values and moving it back to amateurism. And and as you say, like, I mean, about it being a an upper-class sport, like the bloke who basically wrote this was like a medical doctor and ended up becoming the mayor of Toulouse and just like did away with a sport that was hugely popular in his home home region so that he would be more popular with the people that he kind of worked for and also have this power up until the point where the Nazis were basically, well, until France was liberated in 44, he was only mayor for a short while in Toulouse, but it was kind of all about a power grab, as you say, from the upper class Mm. looking down on, on the working class. And as you say, like the whole thing about French football, they, they were all given a, a lot of time. So that was one of the to- that was the time that handball was introduced into into France, which because it was an amateur sport, but it was also German. So like the Germans were trying to similar to what happened with after the Second World War with America introducing baseball and jazz and um, like Western style into Japan. They had this kind of like social um, and cultural hegemony or attempted cultural and social hegemony that brought the two countries closer together. And rugby league was really, of all of the sports, the one that was most affected, aside from, and we must say, our brothers in badminton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and and the funny thing as well with that is is the the rugby, as you said, the the higher rugby union upper class supporters. Even though we said there was money in league, the supporters of union still maintain that upper class nature. Is that they um they actually put some blame on rugby league for the military loss to German to Germany. Did you see that? They, they claimed that it was because Nothing of professionalism. Yes. And the professionalism was a move away from sporting values 
and it, it, it contributed to a lack of moral education that allowed Germany to sweep through through France. And it's saying that, you know, these people, if you like rugby league, you'll go and, and play for yourself and do things for you and make money and whatever. But, you know, if you like union, you'll, you'll be part, it's, you'll, you'll be part of the team and work for each other kind of bullshit essentially. But they said that, yeah, rugby league is part of the reason uh, that, that, that German, the Germans swept through them and the, they, they assassinated the, um, the moral education of Germany. Sorry, <laughs> French, sorry, did rugby league. Well, like let, quite a strong game. Let this be strong a key, game. <laughs> let this be a key lesson to you all. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that, exactly right. It's a very strong game league, mate. He can literally get involved in wars. I lost it, but <laughs> I mean, if league was still around, mm. would it have killed baby Hitler? That is the real yeah. question. Yeah. And it's and it is funny that it's lost looking back then that rugby union was the violent game. As as time rolled on, league became the more violent game. But before, you know, in the early nineteen hundreds. The, the Catholic Church in France had deemed rugby as a sin, like playing rugby <laughs> in general, too violent. You should go play soccer or basketball or similar because rugby rugby was too like too much of a violent game. So it is funny because obviously now as, as league fans, we kind of pride ourselves on league being tougher than union, yeah. you know, and, and, and back in the 30s, apparently union was the, was the, the tough man's game. Right. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, they had to take time away from you know, being like lawyers and <laughs> and uh, and very well off um, patrons of the art. Um, yeah. But yeah, as you said, so after 1944, France basically kind of got back to its feet with rugby league, and it kind of tried to pick up from where it left off. I mean, they went back to playing uh, in the well. They they had a lo- a knockout competition. Um, until they were uh, obviously banned in 1940, which was called the Lord De- or Lord Derby Cup. Um, and I mentioned this to you guys, but fun fact about the Lord Derby Cup, it's named after the 17th uh, Earl of Derby, whose father donated the Stanley Cup to fun the National Hockey League. Um, and Still the best trophy in sports. It is a great trophy. I do like that the it's the it's a perpetual trophy, which I really like. Well, I just love the shots every year of the dudes just taking it around to like parties and sporting events and just yeah, and I, it only being able to be picked up by like elite athletes and truck drivers. <laughs> um, but yeah, as you said, um, they had the, that gentleman donated a trophy, so that's a knockout competition similar to like the Challenge Cup that they have in France, um, which is open to all. Uh, all comers basically it's been pretty dominated but obviously by like Toulouse and the Catalan Dragons second team in the last few years but that's kind of to be expected mm. um and yeah off they went they were named uh European champions in 1951 and 90 sorry 1947 and 1951 um back on their feet as I said they were the best team in Europe and then in 1951 they decided it's time to tour Australia yes they did I was looking through that tour today it's what it's wild how long these old like sports tours were. Hey? Like, these <laughs> yeah. guys played. I looked through this. These guys played. They got they got here on. Sorry, I closed it to look at a different French Wikipedia page. But they they got here in like late June, and they they went to Australia and New Zealand, leaving in August, and they played twenty seven games in the first, like ninety first days. Game was against. So the first game was on the twenty third of May against Monaro, yeah. which was played at Monaco Oval, <laughs> and their like the last game of the tour was against Western Australia in Perth. On August the twenty fourth. Yeah. So in like from May to August, they played the equivalent of a full NRL season, whilst traveling yeah. like yeah from it. to and from Australia to New Zealand and then back to Australia again. And as you say, like they played so like their their kind of you know touring touring little journey. They went Canberra, Newcastle, Forbes, Sydney. They played City. Yeah. Albury, Sydney again. They played a test there. Then they played in Armidale, Brisbane. Played mm. Queensland. Uh, Played in Townsville, Bundaberg, two games in Brisbane, a game in Toowoomba, Lismore, Sydney, Wollongong, Sydney, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth. And then they went to New Zealand. (laughs) So they went from, yeah, sorry, they went to New Zealand on the uh, in between going from Sydney to uh, Greymouth. I I should have got him on the show because you know who was there when Sydney played France in uh, June 2nd, uh, 1951. (laughs) Was it your dearly beloved grandfather? Poppy Bungard was indeed there. There you go. Yep. He's, and, and again, a week later when Australia played France, and he told me that um, he told me that he saw Clive Churchill, who was the smallest man in the field, like spear tackle both French props at various points who were twice his size. 
Um, and was that after the 60 minute mark or was he gone by then? I don't, was it on a Wednesday? Is there a need for either of those remarks? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, there probably was. But yeah. nevertheless, um, yeah, yeah. No, so I, I actually grew up with this myth of like France being this amazing rugby league team because he told me about this all conquering French team that came to Australia in 1951 and beat the Aussies in a two to one in a best of three series and just went all around the country just beating random teams like, uh, <laughs> like uh western districts and monaro but they couldn't get past the might of riverina though riverina i mean it's a tough it's a tough place to to go as anyone will tell you can we talk about how much puig albert looks like cooper cronk he does a lot (laughs) (laughs) he's a a funny story too because like he grew up during he grew up before the war and just yeah sorry just before the second world war and as he was kind of coming of age he was breaking into what was the catalan team in perpignan um, and then rugby was banned. Uh, rugby league was banned, obviously. So he went and played for um, Perpignan's rugby union team, and he was so good that he basically transferred his skills and dragged this Perpignan team to the underage title in France. Then, after the Second World War in 1944, he started playing for Catalan 13 again, and he just basically was like the best player in the world. But he was playing in like a, a tiny, well, Perpignan's not exactly a tiny town, but, you know, a comparatively small town in the south of France. And he was just far and away the best player of his era. Like, as you were saying, you talked to Poppy Bungard about it. I mentioned this to my nan and she was like, I remember seeing newsreels of that when I was much younger. Um and like being amazed at just like how quick and how versatile all the French players were because they played a completely different style of game to the Kangaroos. Mm. Um, and Puigo Bear was kind of central to that in that he would play as a kind of much more roaming fullback, get involved in the line and then kick over the top to his wingers. And like the Australians and Kiwis had never seen anything like that before. So you'd have these kind of like, you know, like the, the famous, you know, the cronk kick across field, um, in origin where he kicks it across to whomever it was on the on the wing and they just like walk over for a try. But Puigo Boy was doing that from like his own 20 meter line. Yeah. And he would just kick across field to whoever was chasing through and then they would just tow it through. And yeah, they might go out like 80 meters down the field in the corner, but like they've made this huge gain that mm. the the Australians and the Kiwis were just completely unaware of. Like they had no idea how, how to kind of, shut this yeah, down well, aside from just like break his legs i have no like just from everything i've read though it sounds like rugby league here was a pretty turgid experience a lot of the time in those er- in the era before the six tackle count just because they would just essentially use the unlimited tackles like battering rams just mm. to just keep plowing through the middle um and so yeah for france to come here and basically do things a completely different way must have been pretty mind-blowing for some of those players and and you know that might have actually played a part sort of long term in sort of growing the game here in terms of an attacking way it might have showed people sort of that there is that there was a sort of more open way and a, 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 there's a right or wrong way to play rugby league but a more sort of open way to play rugby league mm-hmm. it, it is funny that you mentioned that that's quality french team and, and that came to it and obviously french league had some decent teams after that period but because of the the, the loss of assets through the the world war and I know they only just started up in 1930, but that period of loss of assets, the game like never recovered professionally there. Yeah. Just never got the money back mm. at that point. Uh, never hit professionalism at the level that it had aimed to or the level of union hit. And yeah, it's a bit of a tragedy that, you know, we could have a bit more of an international game if it weren't yeah. for the bloody, the, the bloody Nazis, mate. I'm I'll tell you. you. They, France did, <laughs> though, they did host the first uh, Rugby League World Cup in they 1954, did. which actually yeah. predates the Rugby Union World Cup by 30 years. I, I'm sure if you asked the most, if you went to a random person on the street and asked them which which competition was older, the Rugby League World Cup or the Rugby mm. Union World Cup, I reckon nine out of 10 of them would say the Rugby Union World Cup. But yeah, the, the league one outdates it by more than 30 years. Of course, France... Yeah made the final in that first year, losing to Great Britain 16 to 12. They hosted it again uh, in 1972, finishing third. They finished third on a couple of other occasions as well, but you're right. They've never really got back to that level of being sort of the best team in the world as they well might have been and might have continued to be, if not for that Adolf Hitler (laughs) and his his love of rugby union. Um, um... Just to, I think just to put a, a little kind of full stop on this, obviously France, as you said, really never became the world powerhouse that they probably could have been and really should be um, based on their, their history. But I just want to 
duck back and quickly have a yarn about that 51 tour. So obviously yep. they played three mm-hmm. tests in Australia. Uh, France beat Australia 26 to 15 in front of 60,000 people at the Sydney cricket ground. Um, and I think this was the first time that France had toured outside of Europe at this point. Yep. Um, so they, as I said, they beat Australia in a fairly comprehensive, uh, fairly comprehensive display there played in uh, Brisbane at the Gabba um, because obviously Lang Park didn't exist at that point and neither did QE2, which is a great chime. Uh, lost in Brisbane 23 to 11. And then they played a bunch of other games in, uh, in both New South Wales and Queensland. Queensland. Yep. And then the last game of the tour was on the 21st of July, 1951, in front of 67,000 people at the Sydney Cricket Ground. And Australia lost 14 points to 35 against France. Puyo Bear kicked seven goals and basically scored more points the, than the entire Australian team. Yeah. Um, but the, I think the, the most ironic thing for me and one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast uh, and wanted to do this and research a little bit more, obviously it's, it's, I'm quite interested in the history of France, but mm. the 21st you, of never. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the 21st of the 21st of July, 1951, um, France beat Australia and became the first team to ever beat Australia on a home tour. Um, basically, were the unofficial world champions of a sport that less than 10 years ago had been tried to be scrubbed off the face of the earth. And the very next day, the man who signed that decree to try and delete their sport died in jail a traitor to his country uh and that to me was kind of france rugby league coming full circle and obviously as you said like they don't get the kind of credit they deserve now um but for a glimmer of time uh, they were the best team in the world yeah um then of course they went over the ditch to play they played three warm-up games in france against west coast canterbury and wellington before uh, losing after the siren to a penalty goal, 16-15 to New Zealand. I just want to read out a little bit about this this game because it made me laugh quite a bit. Um, they, it was one of the most dramatic and dirtiest games ever played by the Kiwis. First, it was West Coast 5-8. George Menzies forced off with a cheekbone broken by a French headbutt. Then it was Otago's uh, all-black halfback, Jimmy Haig, with a broken jaw. Also, Charlie McBride was bitten. They didn't expand on that. They just said he was mm-hmm. bitten. Yeah, that's uh, good. In, the, in the middle of the second half, a brawl erupted amongst the forwards. French prop and national middleweight champion Louis Mazon was heavily involved. I would have mm. that. That's like a flashback to when poor old Matt Singh had to square up against Topawati. Uh, Monty like, Beatham made bashes. Yeah, yeah. it's just like fuck. I'm getting. Being I'm the getting. Bloke who's like getting visions fuck. of uh, Peter Fitzsimons trying to fight the entire French rugby yeah. pack and getting yeah, the absolute yeah, yeah. shit beaten out of him. No, but I just mean like you know that there's one guy on the other team that's like their best fighter, and it's just yeah. like you know it's your job to fight him, and you're just like, well, I'm gonna get the shit kicked out of me here. You but... know what you got to do on your first day in the yard, mate. You got to find the biggest guy in yeah. there and you got to throw your meal. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, him. yeah. So uh, Griffin sent Fr- <laughs> the ref sent the French hooker off for throwing mud at him, <laughs> but, the, but he refused to leave the field. That's great. The president of the French rugby league and his New Zealand counterpart came onto the field and eventually persuaded him to leave. Oh, we say three um, hands too. That's what I was hoping that was that was going. No replacements were allowed, so the game wound down with eleven Kiwis in the field and twelve Frenchmen. There was no ground clock or siren in those days, so players had to listen for the chimes from the nearby University of Auckland wedding cake tower to get an indication of the time remaining. They knew that it was usually all over by four p.m., but this game went well past four. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, in the last seconds of the game, uh, the Kiwi winger was away down the down the line, copped a high shot, uh, and their uh, their fullback Desmond White uh, backed up against the white picket fence on the sideline and sent the ball sailing between the posts. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, a touch judge was also knocked to the ground as uh, one of the Frenchmen attacked Kiwi centre Maury Robertson as he left the field. <laughs> it's incredible. Oh man, it's funny. But yeah, times. Oh, I just, I really need to see this guy who got sent off for throwing uh, mud at the referee. Uh, yeah, I do. I do like Dale though regaling us with the the stories about the French rugby league style on that tour. Because I actually hadn't looked at that, and I did. I did know through research as well that apparently league's growth in the 30s there was because the French actually liked the you know the more open play and the fact they could throw the ball around more and there was less rucks and scrums. So you know, apparently it suited the, the French like style watching, of playing sports more. Yeah. If you like watching like French, uh, like Fijian rugby sevens, Mm. that was the same kind of vibe that I got watching this. 
<clears throat> excuse me, obviously quite different in that it, there was a lot less like contact um, because obviously the rocks were different, but the France would just kind of like get the ball in a tackle and have one arm free and just throw an offload and then like just pass along the line. And effectively it wasn't so much about going forward as obviously because they didn't have the mm. six tackle rule, but it was just about like, how long can we keep the ball in play? And obviously you had like contested rucks and like there was a five meter offside, even though the referee was standing next to the ruck. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was just weird to watch. And also yeah. like p- properly contested scrums and like scrum, but the French still understanding that like you can have a scrum play. So they, they pack down properly and then they would like run scrum plays where they'd kick over the top or like not necessarily running like dummy runners, but, running all at different angles and they like the Australians had no idea what hit them. And then that was obviously, as I said, one of the reasons that when they played in, when they played in Sydney, because it was kind of their conditions, it was cold and wet and really windy. They were able to influence the game so much because Australia just weren't used to dealing with players who kind of were so good with ball in hand. Yeah. And, and I guess also in that time, you can't really research the opponent before they get to your country. No, exactly. So as you said, the, the sport can be played almost in two different, entirely different ways across the globe then. And that's how France can come here and surprise you with something. Whereas mm. this doesn't happen now. It can't happen now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Those Walker boys, they're still doing great things at <laughs> Ipswich. What uh, are yeah. they doing at Les Jets to Ipswich? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did find too um, afterwards, I didn't know this happened until uh, research, obviously, but in, in UK Parliament in 1999, they passed a motion that was signed off by 61 members to acknowledge what the French had done to rugby league. And, uh, mm. and it's a bit, a bit, a bit, you can Google if you want, if people want to read it, but a motion essentially going through that the disgraceful thing of banning rugby league and that you couldn't even use the word rugby league to like 1989 there or something. And I think Bungard had it down that there was called the 13 man's game or something. Yeah. So well, that was, the federation's league. name was the rugby the 13 because they weren't literally weren't mm. allowed to say rugby league. Yeah. And they also can, they condemned unreservedly those individuals, and organizations, including some in French rugby who colluded with this out, outrage. Oh, we should get in front of this though. Um, we, we also <laughs> condemn Nazis. That's it. Yeah, we want it on also, the record. Yeah, thank you for that. I, yeah. I'm glad that we've you've put those words in my mouth. This That's is it. yeah, thank you for that. But You're, essentially, they, right. they stripped assets from leagues and took. But it's, it's quite interesting seeing that go into British Parliament for some reason. But, but that's there. And I also missed out earlier that some French unions actually jumped to become rugby league teams before the, before it all happened. I, I like that. One day, you turn up to training. It's like you know, guys. We're a league team now. <laughs> like, it was three of the top, I think three of their top level teams had, had jumped to uh, league one off season. I like yeah. that about old sports stories that you just move. Yeah, they had a lot A lot of the teams back then. They had, so like um, La Havre, which is a team in the north of France, uh-huh. um, still exists now as a French football team. Mm. But they started out as what was called a combination back then. So they would have players play they, they would basically have like them and then they would have like squash and badminton and not necessarily cricket, but like a lot of those kind of continental sports. But then, yeah, as I said, they, same as um, Bradford Park Avenue in the UK, they actually used to be what are now Bradford Bulls, used to be Bradford Northern. They were one club at one point. And if I'm not mistaken, they're the only club in the UK to have won cups in two different sports at the same time. Mm. Um, but it was the same kind of thing. Like Le Havre were playing in the French rugby league competition uh, and also playing like football as well. So like it was, it was very common to have players playing two sports, one on the Saturday, one on the Sunday. Yeah, it's very interesting, huh? Like, <laughs> I think I might, uh, I think I might post, I'll, I'll uh, see if I can get some, some video from the French yes. rugby league tour um, <laughs> in 1951 and see yeah. if I can post that on the boom rookies account. Cause it's quite interesting I know it's going to be grainy as all hell, but it's it's really interesting to see just the kind of how different the game was back then, but also how different the French game was to the Australian game. So hopefully I can find some of that and pop that up uh, with this one as well. Good idea. Good man. Because we're all visual learners. But yeah, yes. Just, um, I, I, I did enjoy researching this and we've always joked about rugby union being a Nazis game. And, you know, who knows if everyone, anyone else has researched, but hopefully people learn something from us doing a bit of history. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we always the greatest game of all, and and this was, um, you know, could have been the greatest team of all. Mm. Yeah, and that that's it's 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 it honestly go down as like a sort of a great what if of the sport, really. Like, I mm. mean, who knows how different the landscape of um, 
like the sport would be completely if not for like what was arguably or reportedly the best team in the world at the time just being completely derailed by actions out of their control yep 100 hmm. percent. all right uh is there anything else you guys want to say before we uh got out of here anything else we want to cover um don't be a fascist it seems pretty <laughs> yeah i might be anti-fascism <laughs> thank you yep. I'm not decided just yet, though. <laughs> I think, mate, you take as much time as you need uh, yeah. to work it out. As long as we all, as long as we're all singing from the same anti-fascist <laughs> song sheet. Oh, if you uh, another thing, if you're interested in, you know, apparently a communist, but in true fascism, uh, there's a great documentary. Yes, it is in Russian, but if you go onto YouTube, uh, Putin's opposition, Navalny did a documentary on a palace. Putin oh, I built. did see this story. And it, the subtitles are in English. It's quite good. Uh, you can skip to the like 30 minutes in, they go through the palace or similar. But Putin had a, a $1.3 billion palace built for himself, essentially. It's great. It's uh, not in his name or anything, but it's just interesting looking through the level of corruption, you know, that happens in the world. And they get, a, we all know Putin's corrupt, but just how easily he just gets away with things and nothing yeah. can happen to him. Mm. Yep. Uh, and also, before we go, I'd just like to give a quick shout out to our Patreon subscribers, uh, the people in the top two tiers of our Patreon program. If you want to support us, that's patreon.com forward slash Rookies. We are very much appreciative of all the support you guys have given us. And without your help, we certainly would not be doing uh, January podcasts about uh, Nazis in rugby league. So, yep, if you want to, again, if you if you like what we do and support us, uh, uh, patreon.com forward slash Rookies. If you don't need money, just give us a five-star review on iTunes. That's all we ask. And tell a friend to listen. They don't have to like, no tell a friend to download. They don't have to listen. Just mm. download. All right. Do it. <laughs> anyway. Bird Andrews, Dave, Carlo Tyson, Ben Wallace, Dan Cullinane, an anonymous backer, Frankie, Harvey G, Jace G, Jason, Josh Brandon, Maddie Jenkins, Maddie McP, Michael Murray, Morgan Watkins, Never Trendy, Old Mama Bear, Roxanne Clark, Simo, Ty, Thor Laycock, Tom Hardy, Warwick Ahern, and Wayne Ritchie. Thank you very much for your continued support and to everybody in those lower tiers as well. As I said, without you guys, this would not be happening and we are very much appreciative for your support, of your support, I should say. Yeah. Mm. Keep it up, yo. Uh, also, you know, if there's any other stories like this that you you think are worthy of sort of a deeper dive like this, um, let us know. Let us know on Twitter or on Patreon if you are a Patreon supporter or anywhere else. Uh, we got an email the other day, Mitchell, but um, but, uh <laughs> what's that? <laughs> we got some bullshit email from like some YouTube channel that was asking us to like give them money for like podcast growth advice or some shit. I don't, I don't know. know. And then he wanted to do a collab with us, and we, and the the thing is it. Again, if you ever pitch an advertisement to someone, oh, we just did something last week with someone, we made $30,000. It's like, oh, yeah, I've been in podcasting long enough to understand that a random podcast did not make $30,000 in one week because they didn't add, they did something with you on your terrible YouTube channel. Mm. Yep. But yeah, I look forward to his next email because he said it's like four because we haven't, I haven't responded to any of them. <laughs> and well, that's like, when you know someone's legit, when they're desperate for your business. Yeah. They, they, yes. must be, they must be really good. Yeah. good All right. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll be back again next week. Say goodbye, Dale. Goodbye. Say goodbye, Mitchell. Goodbye, Mitchell. And it's goodbye from me. Au revoir. <laughs> <laughs>